How will we turn uh, prayerfully to God's word? Uh, Let's ask for his help again. Lord and Father, you are a great and gracious God. Uh, You speak the words we need to hear, uh, though sometimes we don't always want to hear them. Uh, We pray by your spirit you'd stir our hearts, that we would delight in everything you have to say to us this morning. And by your spirit you'd change us, that we would resemble all the more our saviour Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 22. Have a look at Jesus' words. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Uh, Jesus is speaking in response to their shock at a tree that Christ killed with a word. Uh, And it withered as a warning against a life that is all show and no substance. So Jesus draws a distinction between religious activity and having a a real transforming encounter with the divine uh, and that fills them with a little bit of fear, the the, the reality of of cursing and his response, have faith in God. See, sadly, it is possible to spend time near God but never understand him, never share his heart, never having his love move you. At a conference last weekend, I heard some church experiences uh, One particular woman arrived early, her first time at this church, um, not this church, the church she was at. Um, She sat in a largely empty building, uh, picked a pew, only to have another woman arrive and point out, oh no, it's actually my seat. So she shuffled along. And then the regular woman's friend arrived, so she shuffled again. And then a third person, and when the fourth person arrived, she got up and found a new pew by herself. All that time, no one really engaged her. Um, At a different church, uh, a man spent a whole year, he would go in quietly, regularly attending, a whole year completely unspoken to by all except for the bishop when he visited, the only person who chatted to him. Um, I don't share this so we feel smug. Uh, Rather, they are extreme reminders of how it is possible to, to be religiously active, to be near God, hearing him all the time, but never sharing what fills his heart. Uh, if you don't believe me, think Mary and Martha. There is Ma- Mary uh, in the presence of God, kneeling at his feet. Jesus is in the house and she's just basking, lapping him up. And Martha is furious because, hey, get busy. There's things to do. But a real encounter with Jesus changes you. Uh, And if you know God, God will be seen in you. If there is no sign of his life in you, you have never really encountered God. A terrible place to be. And however it is that you come today, this morning, you know, whether you come kind of, you're filled with excitement about engaging with with Jesus or whether you're kind of a little jaded and a little even uncertain as to where you stand with him, Jesus is inviting you to a real faith that transforms. Uh, We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel uh, don't worry, it's not actually Palm Sunday despite the reading. It, you know, the year hasn't flown by, it's not Easter next weekend. No, we're, we're just working our way through seeing why Jesus came and how his arrival impacts us. And put simply, King Jesus comes for fruit. King Jesus comes for fruit. As he rides into Jerusalem, as he tears apart the temple, um, we see who he is and the difference real faith makes. King Jesus comes for fruit. And there are three parts of this truth I want us to see. First, Jesus comes with divine authority. Heaven's king has come to save. So, 11 verse 1, start of the chapter. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's into God's city and he enters from the east over the Mount of Olives. Jesus doesn't make accidental moves. Everything's intentional. 
Zechariah is in the back of his mind. Zechariah 14 prophesied that the Lord Yahweh would come as king over the nations, that God himself would come and he would set his people free and restore their fortunes. And Zechariah 14.4 pictures the Lord coming, splitting the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is uh, big and steep, it towers over the city and when Jerusalem was attacked from the west, you couldn't escape. Think escarpment, okay? Um, But God will split the mountain and so his people might escape their enemies. Remember in Moses' day, the Red Sea parted to save God's people but Zechariah promised a mountain is going to move, seemingly the impossible for their freedom. A picture, nothing will stop the Saviour. We're going to come back a little later to this. But Jesus enters as heaven's king. Now throughout Mark, you know Jesus was minimising attention. He was actually limiting people speaking about him, but now he arranges a spectacle, a bit of political theatre. Verse 2 and 3, he orders his disciples to uh, arrange transport according to Zechariah 9's uh, expectation. We read it, that this king comes with gentle confidence. So in the Old Testament, uh, unridden animals were acceptable for sacred purposes, holy purposes. It's a holy mission. And riding a colt was not unknown uh, for princes. You know, Solomon was crowned from the back of a donkey. Uh, Genesis 40 anticipated a king from Judah's line is going to have a, a donkey, a foal, a colt. Um, Zechariah 9 that we read, what's subversive is not what he's riding but the timing. That's the subversive. It's the time. It's this holy mission of peace. You, you don't ride a donkey into battle. The timing is all wrong. You ride a donkey in times of peace when the victory is won and that is Jesus. Jesus comes gently rather than brutally because he's going to win a different war. And in verse 4 to 6, Mark records things in such a way to underline how everything is happening just as Jesus said. He wants us to see the power of Christ, his divinity. He is, he's got a God-like mastery of everything. It all happens. Jesus orchestrates every event to enter Jerusalem as heaven's king freeing his people through gentle righteousness. And the response, verse 7, from verse 7, the the crowds embraced their king. They spread spread their cloaks on the path. That is a a symbol of submission. Uh, It recalls King Jehu's anointing in 2 Kings 9. And palm branches are laid at his feet. This is a symbol of nationalism and victory. And in verse 9, crowds surround him entering the city and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, roughly translated, Hosanna is a cry for salvation. Uh, At Passover, the time this is going on, at Passover, the Hallel Psalms were sung. Uh, Psalms 113 to 118. um, Kind of high rotation of those, on repeat, constantly. Everyone's singing those Psalms. And these Psalms, constant cry was, Hosanna, save us. Save us like you rescued from Egyptian slavery. And they mention, you notice there, our father David. It shows the crowd's expectation, a king has come, he is going to set us free. And the crowds are shouting what Jesus has already shown by riding his colt down the Mount of Olives. Heaven's king has come to save. And the point is not lost on the religious authorities. Uh, Mark actually brackets Christ's Jerusalem visit with conflict. So in verse 28, just a little after Lyndall read, we're going to pick up more of it next week, but but we need to see how it wraps together now. In verse 28, the the religious leaders seek him out and they ask a question, by what authority do you do these things? Who do you think you are? And Jesus answers indirectly but not evasively. 
he challenges them in verse 29 and 30 to give their view on John the Baptist's ministry. This is not evasion. Now, Jesus is tying himself that way to John. Now, you might remember Mark 1, it was a long time ago, we looked at the start of Mark's Gospel, but we have been looking at it in growth groups, so it might be familiar. Mark 1 opened with John pointing to the one who's going to come and baptise with the Spirit, and John is backed by a voice from heaven declaring Jesus to be God's true Son. That is, John's ministry had divine backing. That was his authority. And Jesus is by saying, hey, think of John, he is claiming heavenly authority. He is not evasive, he's being challenging. Verse uh, 31 and 2, we didn't read it, but it's there. 31 and 2, they have to make a decision about Jesus, just like we do. So Jesus comes with divine authority. Crown him or kill him, you cannot ignore him. Crown him or kill him, you cannot ignore him. The crowds praise him, they lay their cloaks at his feet. The priests, in verse 18, resolve to kill him. Um, They join the Pharisees and Herodians, political leaders, who've been plotting to kill Jesus since chapter 3. And what drives them? They fear him. They fear him because the crowd look to him, not them. He undermines their sense of esteem and authority and identity. In verse 32, um, we read that they live in fear of popular opinion. Uh, Some of us know we're even willing to admit by nature we're people pleasers. Uh, We care deeply what other people think about us. You know, it's not just about the the principle and and driving through. We want to be liked. And the priests are a solemn warning of what people pleasing can do to your relationship with Jesus. Crown him or kill him, you cannot ignore him. Of course, our culture wants to ignore him. They want to tame Jesus. A clawless Jesus who only appears as a babe at Christmas with kind of generic, empty affirmations of peace. Uh, Dorothy L. Sayers uh, grieved how the church tamed Christ. Let me set the scene a little before we get to that quote. Um, she, uh, she declined a uh, prestigious title from the Church of England, a, a Lambeth Doctorate in Divinity. Uh, she declined in part knowing that she was going to have greater impact by not being so closely associated with the church. There was more to it than that, but that was one of the reasons. She wanted to stay kind of disconnected. Not as... See, Sayers wrote in The Greatest Drama Ever Staged this. I'll start the quote a little before we get to there. She says, Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We're constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much on doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is quite the opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man and the dogma is the drama. Dogma, the facts, scriptural truth. She goes on, she says, this is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. And if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy of being called exciting? Uh, The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. No, on the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. And to pick it up, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. To those who knew him, however... He in no way suggests a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. The real Jesus is not tamed. 
Now, the real Christ, the Christ of dogma, the Christ of Scripture, of truth, is not tamed. Crown him or kill him, you cannot ignore him. Heaven's King has come and our city needs to know this. Many are going to try and put him out of their lives completely. But if you and I, if we see him clearly, what he'll do is he'll fill us with praise like the crowds there that day. You'll lay your cloak before him, you'll cry Hosanna, you'll delight that he wears the crown. Uh, The Puritan John Flavel put it, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and they promote sanctification. So he's saying... You've got to just not know truth. You've got to feel truth and be excited about Jesus himself. And it's the excitement in him, seeing him, that is going to change and transform you. We're made for spiritual exhilaration. And joy in him is eternal and transforming. And if you don't come to Jesus to warm your heart, you're going to search for satisfaction in earthly things and they will not last and they will not change you. You cannot ignore Jesus. Many will kill him, but the blessed will crown him. Heaven's king has come. With that, secondly... Points possibly get shorter. Uh, Jesus comes looking for fruit. Christ judges our hearts and lives. Uh, Jesus doesn't seek political power. Notice verse 11, he goes to the temple, not the palace. His concern for us is spiritual and eternal. That is, he is looking for fruit in you that you have really encountered God. And so he's going to destroy empty religious activity. And so Jesus frames his visit to the temple with an illustration to warn us. Uh, Jesus curses the fig tree for being all show and no substance. Notice in verse 12, uh, Jesus is hungry. He is looking for fruit. And in verse 13, the fig tree is alive but fruitless. Now, some commentators say, given the time of year, uh, a healthy fig with leaves should also bear the buds of sweet early figs. To to have leaves and to to have no fruit at this point is a sign it's never going to produce. Either way... The issue here is it's got a sign of life but no fruit to satisfy. It's all show, no substance. And with a word, verse 14, Jesus reduces the fig to what it really is. And you notice they return the next day, verse 20 and 21, day later, it is withered from the roots. Withered from the roots, that is, it's dead at its source. With a word, Jesus has revealed the dead reality of this tree. And this judgment on the fig tree is Jesus' only miracle that brings death. We're used to him healing. We're used to him bringing life. Here he is bringing death. It is a brutal assessment of empty religion. It frames his temple visit. So verse 15, he enters the temple outer courts and he tears apart the business that's been set up. This is no Jesus meek and mild. No, this is the beauty of righteous anger as he flips tables and forces people out. He is angry at the temple becoming a place that kept people from God rather than bringing them near. So these stalls existed uh, because people would come from a long distance to sacrifice at the temple um, and many came a long way. Uh, and rather than kind of packing your own pigeon for sacrifice or you know, bringing along your, your sheep, um, much more efficient, you bring the cash, you buy it there, uh, flip it over and likewise um, people would come from all different parts of the empire, different kind of nations in the empire, so different currencies so they've got to be able to exchange it. Um, that's not the issue. Jesus is furious in verse 17 at the robbery, but it is not about the trade and it is not about the price gouging. No, the word for robber is not the common word for a thief, it is the word for a rebel, an insurrectionist. That is, these shops were set up in the only place where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people like most of us, could come and pray. They are robbing 
Those who are furthest away from God, the opportunity to engage with God. They are rebelling against the temple's purpose. And with that, they rebel by robbing God of the praise that he is due. Here, you know, how can you pray with all that commercial activity going on? It's just chaos. No, here is the beauty of righteous anger. God hates that which keeps people separate from him. And on top of that, he condemns empty religious activity. So he says it's a den of robbers. And that's a quote from Jeremiah 7. Read Jeremiah 7 later. Uh, Jeremiah 7, it's not about trade. It's about false security. A, a den, a den is a sanctuary. A sanctuary of insurrectionists. Um, Jeremiah 7 warns though, there is no safety for the people who will exploit the weak and manipulate justice, do their own thing. That, you know, just because they add a little bit of religious activity, that doesn't make them safe at the temple. The temple was the symbol of heaven and earth meeting. But there is no safety coming to God in a flurry of activity if your life bears no fruit of knowing him. That's the warning of the fig tree. Jesus has not kind of flipped out and lost his temper. He hasn't snapped. Remember verse 11? He looked at all the facts the day before. This is, this is the slow, considered justice of God that Christ cursed the fig to help you and me understand complete destruction will come to those who are all show and no substance. So Jesus comes looking for fruit. Christ expects transformation, not religious busyness. He expects transformation, not religious busyness. For many, for many people, activity, keeping yourself occupied is a substitute for real engagement with what's important in life. So many people aren't here now because they're busy. A New York Times article by Tim Crider puts it this way, um, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. You ever be saying tongue-in-cheek? You know, how the busyness of life can be all show and no substance, a, a way to avoid actually engaging God, something that just fills the void of meaning and so many of our, our friends and neighbours operate that way and even for believers, we can fill time with committees and tasks and groups and events but we're not growing in godly character. Don't get me wrong, um, you can't be fruitful without action. Love and patience does grow through serving alongside others but, but there are some who despite being constantly active even in church over the years, are not more closely resembling the Saviour. Like the fig tree, the appearance of life but dead at the root. One pastor put it, busyness doesn't mean you're a faithful or fruitful Christian. No, it means you're busy, just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, your soul are in danger. We need the word of God to set us free. We need biblical wisdom to set us straight. What we need is the great physician to heal our overscheduled souls. If only we could make time for an appointment. So you and I need a transforming encounter, God. We, we don't need constant activity. If you are busy but not growing, it's time to pause and reconnect. Uh, Richard Bogonian shares of a, a friend he invites to read the Bible. Um, his friend was going through a divorce and Richard suggested he'd find comfort in God and he said, no, no, too busy. Uh, two years later, he messaged Richard, the time has come for me to look at the word. Uh, he explained, I was 48 in the gym on the treadmill. I realised I was on the treadmill of my life and I haven't got the answers. I figured there's probably one book that does. It's the Bible. I better get hold of Richard. 
See, in God's mercy, this man heard Christ's warning, the fig tree's warning. He needed the experience uh, of Jesus in reality because his activity was empty. And Christ looks at your life for fruit, not busyness. Thirdly, lastly, Jesus came creating fruit. Christ gives his life to produce fruit. The chaos of the temple was short-lived. So the money changes. We know that they would have been back the next day. Um, you know, the Gentiles would have still been excluded. Uh, Jesus doesn't flip the tables thinking, oh, that'll fix everything up. He'll reform the system and keep it going. No, he came to replace it and bring real life. And he explains his new system in verse 22 to 24. So it's in response to the withered fig and total judgment. They're shocked. Like, what do we make of this, this this judgment, this condemnation, this cursing of God? What do we make of that? Jesus has a new way. Verse 22, have faith in God. And the new way, built on trust in God, total dependence on his provision, complete trust that you give everything over to him. See, true connection with God is the only foundation for a fruitful life. And it starts with faith. Verse 23 goes on. Verse 23, Christ's new way overcomes the impossible problem of entering God's presence, being with him. So those who trust God can cast this mountain into the sea. A lot going on here. It might be, on one hand, a a more general analogy that that nothing, not even the most permanent obstacle, can stop a faithful believer being fruitful in the service of God. You know, that that, that as we read on, those who who believe receive their requests. It might be that. I suspect there's something more going on. Mountains are the place of divine interaction. That's where heaven and earth meet, the high places, all those things, temple built on. The sea was the place of chaos, and destruction. Remember Mark 5, the legion of demons drove the pigs into the sea, into chaos, into destruction. And in verse 23, Jesus looks to the place where God meets humanity being cast into destruction. So this mountain, not any mountain, this mountain, the Mount of Olives, the mount that Zechariah said God would destroy, split to save his people. Um, Christ might even be hinting at his own death to bring life. In Jesus, heaven and earth meet. And he is cast into the chaos to save a little later on the cross. So either reading of this mountain, Jesus is speaking a word of encouragement. He's saying, you are not, when you come to God, you are not stuck living in empty, powerless religion. No, he promises a new way sustained in verse 24 by grace, by God hearing and granting our needs and desires, a life where anyone's prayers are heard. You know, Gentiles who are stuck in those outer temple courts, they can just come straight to him. And those requests are the overflow of faith. This is not a blank check on prayer, he's saying. Notice the way that the sentence, the paragraph flows. Verse 22, faith in God comes before verse 24, the prayers are made. It's that connection with God, relationship with him that shapes our prayers, our desires, that, that makes sense of him granting what we ask for. Verse 25, a life ultimately that comes from this is characterised by forgiveness received and forgiveness passed on. So what Jesus is doing in that little paragraph, in response to their kind of fear you know, and, and surprise and shock, the, the curse and the judgment of God, he's explaining the fruitful life. He's saying, everything the temple pointed to but couldn't deliver, I can. You know, so the temple pointed to true faith. It, it pointed to access to God and prayer for all. It, it pointed to a, a transforming experience of forgiveness as they go and sacrifice in a new community of grace. And he says, no, no. I can bring that. Have faith in God. What the temple can't do, as this mountain is cast in the sea, the curse of empty activity is lifted. Jesus came creating fruit. And so, take comfort in his promise of verse 22. 
faith in God truly transforms. A fruitful life is not about your effort. It is the result of having a real encounter with God. It is trusting his wisdom, his work. It is not leaning on your own. Uh, Tony Huang, uh, he is the subject of uh, this week's episode of Compass. If you don't know uh, that show, uh, it's the ABC's religious program, ABC iView, you can catch it. Um, He is from a uh, Vietnamese refugee family. Uh, Tony's life spiralled, as a boy really, and then a teenager, into gang violence and the drug trade and substance abuse. Uh, Despite his ill-gotten wealth, he was making seven dollars to $10,000 a week as a 16-year-old. And the trade is, you know, I don't think he was doing tax either, so that's pure profit. Um, But the relational damage was overwhelming. At 21, he tried uh, to overdose but was saved by his siblings. And he said, I was in the darkest period of my life. I just didn't want to live anymore. I would cry out to God and I would weep and get drunk looking at photos of my dead friends and family. And Tony went one day to an empty church. The doors were open, no one was in there. And he prayed for a sign. And the next day on the streets of Cabramatta, he was handed a flyer that read, if you're looking for a sign from God, here it is. (laughs) Awesome. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humour? Um, and that street encounter led him uh, to, to, to someone sharing the gospel and telling Tony just how much Jesus loved him and died for him and Tony repented and he left that old life of staining from alcohol and heroin and cigarettes and swearing and, and, and embraced Christ and he now pastors a church in Fairfield and he says this, he says, I have a faith that is now expressed in the community from helping drug addicts to preventing people from joining gangs to helping the homeless and that is all driven by my faith in God. Jesus' words, have faith in God. Faith in God transformed Tony. A real experience of the grace of God that so filled him and changed him that that he could be fruitfully loving others. Now, I know his story might be a little more extreme than some of us here, but the process is the same for all of us. And and, and we know spiritual fruit is really obvious, isn't it? You know, loving others deeply and increasing joy despite your circumstance and and, and being peaceful under pressure, small acts of unseen kindness and and commitment to truth when it's costly, embracing those who hurt you and fail you and and valuing others, whoever they are, not because of what they might bring you, just simply because of who that... Spiritual fruit can be seen, it's evident. And if you're going to be increasingly fruitful, it will come only from a deeper experience of God's grace. Have faith in God. You know, we need what Paul prays for in Ephesians 3, to know the dimensions of Christ's love better. For the more you grasp his grace, the more you, his fruit will be produced in you. you now, a real encounter with God changes. Christ came for fruit. The king is looking for it. His life will be seen if only you'll have faith in God. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his great desire to see people come and truly know you. Father, we thank you for his willingness to be cast into destruction that we might be lifted up to life. We thank you for the transforming power of grace and we pray that we might know you, the Saviour King, and we pray that our city would know him too. Guard us from fruitless busyness. And may our life be seen, your life be seen in us. In Jesus' name, amen.